Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. What are the top 10 questions you should ask your skeptical friends, your non-Christian friends? Evangelism can be difficult. How do you even get a conversation started? How do you have a good heart-to-heart, mind-to-mind conversation without it being awkward? Well, sometimes it's hard not to be awkward, but how can you minimize that? How can you minimize offense? How can you interact with people to bring them closer to Christ? That's what I'd like to talk about today. And one of the reasons people don't want to do this, I get it, we're living in an increasingly anti-Christian society. We don't want in any way to be smacked down or to be rejected. In fact, all of us suffer from wanting to be accepted. I mean, it's nice to be accepted, but sometimes you're not going to be accepted because you stand with Christ. Jesus said that if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Paul said anyone who lives a faithful life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So it's coming regardless of what you do. You just want to minimize the offense when you're talking to somebody. So how do you go about doing that? Now, the first thing I think we all need to realize is that you do not need to bring every person that you talk to to the foot of the cross and ask them to pray the sinner's prayer. That's not what your overall objective should be in every conversation. If it is, it's, you, you'll never do this because it's too intimidating. You don't think you'll be able to get there. And chances are you won't get there. You won't get all the way to the foot of the cross in conversations with people. You just want to plant seeds. You just want to move people closer to the truth. You don't have to get them all the way to the truth. Evangelism is quite often a process. It's more like gardening, In fact, my friend Greg Kokel uses that analogy. And so, by the way, does the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is pointing out that when you're building a church, not everybody does everything, and you shouldn't be following these personalities like me or like Apollo or some others. And in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, he says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. If you think you have to do everything... You're going to be too intimidated, and you're going to fail in most instances. You're not supposed to do everything. You're supposed to do what you can do and leave the the results to God. Just be faithful and leave the results to God. If you can just get, get people in today's day and age to believe that there's objective truth out there, that it's not just your truth but the truth, that's a step in the right direction. Be content with that. Somebody else will come along. And maybe take them to the next step, that it's true that God exists. But unless you know somebody for a long time and you have a lot of interaction with them, you're probably not going to get anybody, or let me not say anybody, but you're probably going to get very few people all the way to the foot of the cross in one conversation. 
You're just trying to move the people around the bases to use a baseball analogy. Just get on base. You don't have to hit a grand slam. Just get on base. Somebody else will come along and, and get the guy to second and then to third. And then when he's leaning in off a of third base, maybe you'll be the one that'll bring him home with this Holy Spirit's help. But it wasn't you that did all the work, even if you do bring somebody to Christ, even if they do repent and accept Christ. There were probably many conversations and many events before that that brought them to that point. You just were the one that was fortunate enough to be there when the harvest ultimately took place. So the point is, don't get intimidated. Just get somebody on base. Just move the ball forward. Just get them to believe something that is congruent with the Christian worldview. Somebody else will come along and do some more work, or maybe you'll do some more work with them later if you have a long enough relationship. So let's talk about the top 10 questions to ask your skeptical friends. And I may even go more than 10, but I'm just going to give you the 10 that I might use. And if I meet somebody for the first time, the first thing I'm asking people is, hey, where are you from? What do you do? You know, I just want to know something about them. What's your story? And then after you have a little bit of interaction with them, you might want to say, uh, how were you raised? Were you brought up in a religious home? Just see if they have any religious background. See if they are, they may reveal to, to you right there that they are Christians, or they may say something negative about Christianity. They may say, you know, I was brought up in an atheistic home. I don't care about that stuff, whatever. All religions teach basically the same thing. You know, whatever they're, whatever they're going to say. Now, at that point, now you can use the questions we've talked about several times from Greg Kokel's book, Tactics. The first question is, when somebody says something, is you want to get clarification. So if they say, well, you know, all religions teach basically the same thing, you want to say, well, what do you mean by that? That's the second question. And the first question is just trying to get them to talk and reveal something about themselves, learn something about them as a person. And once you ask them, were you, were you brought up in a religious home or, you know, what's your background? If they come out with a statement, a declarative statement, then you can use these questions that Greg talks about in tactics. And the, the first question, I'm... I'm calling this number two on my list is, what do you mean by that? What do you mean that all religions teach basically the same thing? Oh, you know, um, they all teach you ought to love one another. And then you say, well, why do you think that's true? How did you come to that conclusion? That's the third question in my list of 10. First question is, what's your story? Where are you from? Uh, were you raised in a religious home? They say something about religion. What do you mean by that? How did you come to that conclusion? Then the fourth question, after you ask what do you mean by that, how did you come to that conclusion, is have you ever considered? And then you fill in the blanks. Where this is your opportunity, in other words, to provide some evidence back. So when they say all religions teach basically the same thing, they all teach you how to love one another. You might want to say, well, you've ever considered there are some religions that don't teach you how to love one another. Like, for example, radical Islam doesn't. Um, Satanism doesn't. So there are some religions out there that don't teach you how to love one another. Although I will agree with you that there is a moral component in most religions and they're relatively consistent. And then you can explain if you want why that is, because there's a moral law written on our hearts. You would expect people who are Christians 
or let me put it another way, you would expect people who are made in the image of God to express their moral sentiments in their religious writings. You would expect that because God has written the basic moral law in the hearts of all of us. So you would expect this to somehow make it into their religious writings, and these principles do. You ought to treat people well. You ought not murder them. You ought to love people. These generally find their way into most world religions, although there are exceptions, as I just mentioned. So you can, you can agree with the person on that point. Yeah, you know, you're right. They're, outside of a few exceptions, they generally teach you how to love one another. But have you ever considered that most world religions are fundamentally different and only superficially the same? In other words, yeah, they agree in a moral component, but they disagree on virtually everything else. They disagree on the nature of God, the nature of man, sin, salvation, heaven, hell, and creation. They disagree on virtually all of those major issues. Yes, there is a similar moral component, but everything else is different. So religions agree superficially, but they disagree essentially. So you can do that, I think, in a... In a, in a in a pretty tight manner by using those three questions. What do you mean by that? How'd you come to that conclusion? Have you ever considered? This, again, is a polite way of you providing some evidence back that'll maybe get them to first base. Now they go, oh, I guess religions are a little bit different. And then you can move forward from there. And we will as well, right after the break, you're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network. Our website is crossexamined.org. That's crossexamined with a D on the end of it, .org. We're back in just two minutes. What are the top 10 questions you should ask your skeptical friends, your non-Christian friends? That's what we're talking about today here on I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network. Also want to mention this weekend, which will be January 16th, I'll be at Cottonwood Creek Church, great church there in Allen, Texas. I'll be doing both morning services. I'll be talking about this topic generally in the first service at 9.30, and then uh, I'll be answering questions in the second service. So I hope to see you at Cottonwood Creek Church in Allen, Texas on January 16th. Then just a couple of days later, actually Thursday, January 20th, be at the University of Texas at Dallas at 8 p.m., Everybody is welcome, not just students. So if you're in the Dallas area and want to hear, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, come and ask a question. That'll be on the 20th. And then two days later, the Unapologetic Evangelism Conference in Jacksonville, Texas. I think Greg Kokel will be with me, maybe a few other folks down there in Jacksonville, which I want to say is southeast of Dallas a couple hours. So check that all out. And then a little bit later, we have University of Kentucky, January 31st, University of Louisville, February 1st, Winthrop University, February 8th. We have Lenore Rhine, February 17th, and uh, several other events coming up. Check all that out on our website, crossexamine.org. Click on events. You will see Frank Turek calendar. Also keep an eye on Jim Wallace, our colleague out there. I think he's going to be at Middle Tennessee State on February 8th, the same night we're at Winthrop here in Charlotte. So what are these top 10 questions to ask non-Christian friends? 
Well, suppose you start with the question, the first question I mentioned earlier, and that is, what's your story? Where are you from? How'd you get to where you are? What do you do? do you, were you raised in a religious home? What's your background? That kind of thing. And then they say something. I recommend you use Greg's three questions. What do you mean by that? How'd you come to that conclusion? Have you ever considered, right? Now, let's be honest. Conversations don't always happen this scriptedly. They don't always happen neatly and tidily. You may be jumping around uh, with these questions, depending upon what is said. But generally, if you have these questions in your mind, you can stay in control of a conversation and try and direct in a unoffensive way people toward the right issues, people toward the issues they need to know about. They may learn about these issues and reject what you're saying. That's fine. Your job is just be faithful and leave the results to God. And again, you don't have to get to the foot of the cross with every conversation. Just garden. Just just, just put some water on things. Just plant some seeds. Just, just move people along the base path to go to the baseball analogy. I'm mixing my analogies here. Sorry about that. All right. Let's suppose you realize that the person you're talking to is emotionally against Christianity. Maybe they had a very bad experience with a Christian. And that's probably a majority of people who are against Christianity. That's one of the reasons they're not Christians is because they don't like they, they don't like Christians. They don't like what other Christians have done to them. Now, if if you can sense that, you might want to say to them something like, I understand that. One of the biggest problems with Christianity is Christians. Ha ha ha, everyone laughs. Yeah, that's true. You might want to ask them a question, though. You might want to say, if someone plays Mozart poorly. Who do you blame? Do you blame Mozart? Or do you blame the player who played Mozart poorly? You blame the player. But because the player doesn't play Mozart well, doesn't make Mozart sound beautiful because Mozart really is, you don't say that Mozart, A, didn't exist. You don't say that Mozart is the problem. You say the player's the problem. And Christianity, to a certain extent, agrees the players are the problem. We're all sinners. We're all fallen. We're not going to be perfect. We need a Savior. If we didn't need a Savior, if we were perfect, we wouldn't need a Savior, and none of this would be a problem. But you might want to point people back to the true Mozart. In our analogy here, it would be Jesus. Just because his followers don't follow Christ well doesn't negate the fact that Jesus is true, that Jesus is beautiful, and that we ought to be following Jesus to the best of our ability with the Spirit's help. So you might want to use that analogy. And that, of course, comes from my friend John Dixon down under in his book, Bullies and Saints. We had John on, I don't know, a couple months ago with that great book, and that's the point he makes. He actually uses Bach. Someone plays Bach poorly, who do you blame? You don't blame Bach. You don't blame Mozart. If somebody plays the Beatles poorly, you don't, play, you don't blame the Beatles. <laughs> you blame the band, okay? So you might agree, yeah, Christians have been, have been bad. Christians in many cases haven't done well. Christians in many cases may have treated you wrongly. But by the way, that presupposes a standard, doesn't it? It presupposes a standard of right and wrong behavior. Where does that standard come from? What is your standard of right and wrong? You might ask that question. This is a, an, an additional question I'm throwing in here, all right? So what's your story? What do you mean by that? How'd you come to that conclusion? Have you ever considered? Now, question number five. You've heard me say this many times. 
This question I never fail to ask people if I'm having them conversate, if I'm having a conversation about Christianity, particularly on a college campus. This comes up all the time. Here's the question. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? As you know, I've had atheists stand at the microphone in front of hundreds of people and say, no, no, wait, you claim to be reasonable. How is it reasonable? You wouldn't believe if something were true. Well, it's not reasonable. It's not a head problem. It's a heart problem. They just don't want Christianity to be true. They're not on a truth quest or on a happiness quest, and they're just going to believe whatever they think is going to make them happy. Here's the problem. You can make yourself happy over the short term doing a lot of fun things, but over the long term, it's a disaster. In order to get true contentment and happiness, you got to go straight through truth, and Jesus is the truth. He said the truth will set you free, which implies if you don't have the truth, you're in bondage. And we're all in bondage to our own sin, our own failures, our own guilt for what we've done. Jesus liberates us from all of that. He not only forgives us, he gives us his righteousness. So always ask the question, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? Now, if they come back at you, well, there really is no truth. You know how to handle that. You've listened to this program long enough. Is that true? (laughs) Is it true that there is no truth? Because that's a truth claim right there. It defeats itself. What if they say all truth is relative? You turn the claim on itself there. Is that a relative truth? No, it's an absolute truth. As soon as you open your mouth and make a statement, you're uttering some kind of truth claim. If it has no grounding in reality, it's just your opinion. It's just a preference. But otherwise, it's a truth claim, and it has to be grounded somewhere. What if they say today, there isn't the truth, only my truth? Well, again, you're going to have to turn the claim on itself and say, is that just your truth or the truth? If it's just your truth, that there isn't the truth, only my truth, then it's just your opinion. Why should I believe it? But if it's the truth, you just got done, done to, easy for me to say, you just got done telling me there is no such thing as the truth. Look, the claim, there isn't the truth, only my truth, claims to be the truth. It's, it's self-defeating. I know it's unpopular in today's culture, but there's no such thing as your truth or my truth. There's just the truth. You might as well say, if when, you, when people say, well, I have my truth. That's so Oprah, isn't it? You live your truth. It's so Oprah. It sounds so good, but it's not true. There is no such thing as your truth or my truth. You might as well just say, I have my own math. You have your own math? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm working for you at $15 an hour, right? Yeah. Well, I just worked 10 hours. So by my math, you owe me $15,000. Well, no, <laughs> no, hold time out. I owe you I owe 150, not 15,000. No, I have my own math, okay? We'd say to people, you're nuts. Yeah, well, that is nuts. There is truth out there and you can know it. And it's not your truth or my truth. It's just the truth. How about it's true for you, but not for me? They'll say it that way sometimes. Of course, you're going to say, is that true for everybody? Is true for you, but not for me, true for everybody? Because it's true for you, but not for me, is true for everybody. Then true for you, but not for me, can't be true because it's true for everybody. Did I say that right? I know that can give you intellectual constipation if you think about it, but that's because it's self-defeating. It's like saying I can't speak a word in English. It's self-defeating. So all these claims that there's no truth or all truth is relative or there isn't the truth, only my truth, or if it's true for you but not for me, all these claims are logically self-defeating. 
there is truth out there and you can know it. So if you ask them, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And they go, well, there's no truth. It's just your truth. Then you can say, well, have you ever considered to say there's no truth? It's actually a truth claim. Of course, there's truth out there. All right. Question number six is, if there is no God, why is there something rather than nothing? That's a Leibniz question from a couple of centuries ago. If you want to simplify that, you could say, who created and fine-tuned the universe? Because that's really what you're asking there. If there is no God, why is there something rather than nothing? Who created and fine-tuned the universe? Because the universe has been created. The universe had a beginning. Space-time and matter had a beginning. If space-time and matter had a beginning, there must be something outside of space-time and matter that brought it into existence. As we've pointed out before, that cause has to be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, and intelligent to create a fine-tuned universe out of nothing. And that's exactly what has happened, and even atheists are admitting that the universe had a beginning and that it's fine-tuned. They come up with outlandish multi-universe theories to try and avoid this. It doesn't help them. Even if there are other universes out there, they need to be created and fine-tuned as well. So you're not... You're not getting rid of the need for a creator. You seem to be multiplying a need for a creator. But in any event, you got to ask that question. And as you, as you guys know, there's really only two questions at the end of the day you need to answer to show if Christianity is true. Number one, does God exist? Number two, did Jesus rise from the dead? If those two questions are answered yes, if the answer to those two questions is yes, then Christianity is true. God exists and Jesus rose from the dead. So when you're asking question six, who created and fine-tuned the universe— you're getting to that question, does God exist? It's one evidence for the existence of God. And as we pointed out before, we know God by his effects. If there's a creation, that's the effect. There must be a cause, a creator. If there's design, that's the effect. There must be a cause, a designer. If there's a moral law, that's the effect. There must be a cause, a moral law giver. If, we, if there's reason, that's the effect. There must be a mind from which reason comes. So we're reasoning from effect to cause. When people ask you, how do you know God exists? You ought to say, because I know God by his effects. There's a creation, so there must be a creator. There's design, there must be a designer. There's a moral law, there must be a moral law giver. There's reason, there must be a mind from which this comes. We have a capacity to know the world around us. That is best explained by a mind. An orderly mind, by the way. A mind that gives order to the universe, who creates the universe, fine-tunes it, orders it. All right, we got a lot more. At least four more questions, maybe more. Questions you ought to ask your skeptical friends. I'm Frank Turek. Website crossexamine.org. Back in just two minutes. This summer, this July, we'll be doing the Cross Examine Instructor Academy in Cincinnati, Ohio. Go to our website for details if you'd like to apply. We are also, for the first time ever, running, running CIA, the Cross-Examined Instructor Academy, online, and we're almost full already. We just announced this thing last week. The last I checked, we have 17 students signed up, and we're only taking 24. Why? Because not only are we going to present to you 19 different presentations, 11 different instructors, but you are going to present to us so you're either going to have me, Jay Warner Wallace, Elisa Childers, or Richard Howe as your instructor. You'll actually have two of those four. And you're going to present to us 
because we want to improve your presentation and question answering skills. That's the online CIA. And that starts uh, in February, as does a class with the great Gary Habermas. Actually, no, Gary starts the 17th of January. That one might be full, too. I don't know. Go to our website, crossexamine.org. We filled up the how to interpret your Bible class. Now we have the a resurrection class with Gary coming up. Then I think it starts on February 7th, if I'm not mistaken, CIA, Cross-Examined Instructor Academy online. But we're almost full. You want to get in? Do it now or it's going to it's gonna close. We, we, we can't take more than 24 because we only have four instructors. Each instructor gets six people to, to personally help with, uh, with your presentation and question answering skills. So check all that out on our website, crossexamine.org. Click on online courses. What are the top 10 questions to ask your skeptical friends? So far we got, hey, you're just opening a conversation. What's your story? Where are you from? What do you do? Were you raised in a religious home? Oh, they say something. What do you mean by that? How'd you come to that conclusion? Have you ever considered? We've been through that already. Question number five is, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? That clears the decks of any emotional or volitional objection. You want to see if they have an intellectual objection. If they have an intellectual objection, that's what apologetics does. But if they just have a heart objection, all you can do is love them, pray for them, plant seeds, and wait. Maybe at some point, some tragedy will strike them because it strikes us all at some point. We live in a fallen world. And they'll be open then to Jesus. Then question number six is who created and fine-tuned the universe? Why are we here? Where does this come from? And we mentioned we know God by his effects. One of the effects is creation. Another effect is design. And those are found in the cosmological and teleological arguments, which we cover in depth in I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. All right. Now, what about question number seven? Question number seven is who do you think Jesus of Nazareth was? Why do I use Jesus of Nazareth? Because Jesus Christ can sound a little too religious. Like people are going, oh, he's a guy hanging on a cross in a church somewhere. No. Jesus of Nazareth is a historical person. I know Jesus of Jesus Christ is, but it's the same person, but you're using less religiously loaded language. Who do you think Jesus of Nazareth was? Oh, he was just a man, just a good moral teacher, a prophet, a good guy. Now, if they say he was just a man or just a prophet, you might say, what do you mean by that? And how'd you come to that conclusion? And then you can say, have you ever considered that Jesus said some things that wouldn't make him be a good man if the things he said were really not true about himself? In fact, here's a list of things that Jesus said about himself. Uh... Well, actually, let me do this. I want you to imagine that your friend said this to you. Your friend gave you these lines. At one point, your friend looked at you and said these things. Before Abraham was born, I am. Your sins are forgiven. I and the Father are one. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Whoever obeys my word will never see death. I am the resurrection and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. I am the bread of life. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? Can you imagine some, your friend saying that to you? Yeah, I can. you're lying right now. <laughs> Pray in my name. Father, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world began. If your friend said any of those things, much less all of them, would you say he's just a good moral teacher? <laughs> 
<laughs> you wouldn't even say he was a good moral teacher. You'd say, man, you're nuts. Or you either, you're either nuts or you're God. And if you're God, I need some proof, excuse me. What proof do you have you're God? No, these are not the utterances of just a man. They're not the utterances of just a good moral teacher. C.S. Lewis said this better than anyone. Here's what he said. In light of these things that Jesus had said, he said, and this is from Mere Christianity, he said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish things that people, people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would rather be a lunatic on, the, on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you could fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Unquote. C.S. Lewis, mere Christianity. Now, Jesus was either liar, lord, or lunatic. Liar, lord, or lunatic. Right? If he said... What he said, and he did, he did say these things. If he said these things and he wasn't God, he was either a lunatic or a liar. If he thought he was God, but he wasn't, he was a lunatic. If he said he was God and he knew he wasn't God, then he was a liar. Doesn't seem like lunatic or liar fit any of those or fit the character of Jesus. But Lord certainly does. So when someone says, when you ask them, who do you think Jesus of Nazareth was? If they give you the, well, he's just a good moral teacher, you may want to say, well, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by good moral teacher? And how'd you come to that conclusion? Have you ever considered that Jesus couldn't be a good moral teacher if he claimed to be God and he claimed things like, I am the light of the world and pray in my name and all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me and Father, glorify me with the glory I had before the world began and before Abraham was born, I am. He couldn't be a good moral teacher if he said those things and wasn't God. So, ask the question, what do you mean by that? How did you come to that conclusion? Have you ever considered? Suppose they say, uh, well, you know, Jesus, all those things that you say Jesus said were invented. Okay, that leads to question number eight. I remind you, question number seven is, who do you think Jesus of Nazareth was? Question number eight is, why would devout Jews invent a resurrected Jesus and then suffer and die for their own lie? Why would they do this? What motive would they have? You know, our mutual friend Jay Warner Wallace says there's only three motives that people really do anything. Particularly when he discovers a murdered body, he knows the guy's dead for one of three reasons or a combination of the three. There was either a sex issue, a money issue, or a power issue. Sex, money, or power. Those are the three things that motivate us to commit crime or motivate us to sin. Now, sex, money, and power are good things, but they're so good, we'll sometimes take shortcuts to get them. So what Jim is saying is, if you're going to say that the New Testament writers, who almost all were Jews, the only one that we know who wasn't was Luke. He's a Gentile. Everyone else is a Jew. They're Jewish believers in Yahweh. If you're going to say that they invented all this, You've got to discover a motive for them to do this. 
What motive would they have to invent a resurrected Jesus? Did the New Testament writers get real popular with the ladies for saying Jesus had resurrected from the dead? No. Did they get money for saying Jesus had resurrected from the dead? No. Did they get power for saying Jesus had resurrected from the dead? No. They got the exact opposite. They got persecuted. Paul had power when he was persecuting the Jews, or I should say persecuting the Christians, when he was Saul, when he was at Stephen Stoning and going around dragging Christians around, trying to get them to con- uh, uh, renounce this, what he considered a heresy, this new belief in Jesus. Paul had all the power. Why would he convert to Christianity and then become persecuted, give up all that power? No, these people had every motive to say the resurrection did not happen, not every motive to say it did. In fact, these people didn't believe a man could claim to be God. That would be blasphemy. They also didn't believe that a resurrection would take place in the middle of time. They thought one would take place at the end of time, Daniel chapter 12, but they didn't think one would take place in the middle of time. So why would these people invent a man claiming to be God who rose from the dead, two things they didn't believe would happen, not certainly in the middle of time, and then go die for it when they could have saved themselves by simply saying it never happened. They didn't get sex. They didn't get money. They didn't get power. There's no motive to make this up. You have to have more faith to believe they made it up than to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, what we have to point out to people who say, well, it's just the Bible that tells us this. Well, there are other sources than the Bible, but let's leave that aside for a second. One, one thing that you have to say to people is, I think you have to say that Christianity is not true because a series of documents we call the Bible, we put under one binding, we call the Bible says it's true. In fact, Christianity would be true if the Bible never existed. You say, wait, wait, how can that be? Because Christianity did not originate with a book. Christianity originated with an event, the resurrection. There would be no series of documents written by Jews in the first century saying Jesus claimed to be God and resurrected from the dead, written by Jews, unless Jesus claimed to be God and rose from the dead. You see, the New Testament writers did not create the resurrection. The resurrection created the New Testament writers. You wouldn't have these documents written in the first century by Bible-believing Jews, Old Testament-believing Jews, unless something dramatic like this happened. They had no motive to make it up. And you might want to say, do you realize there were thousands of Christians before a line of the New Testament was ever written? Yeah, why? Because these people didn't read about Christianity in a book. They witnessed a resurrected Jesus themselves, or they knew reliable, pe- reliable people who had witnessed him resurrected from the dead, like Luke. Luke said he checked with the eyewitnesses. So, they didn't, become a Christ- they didn't become Christians by reading the Bible. They became Christians and then wrote the Bible. <laughs> Why did they become Christians? Because Jesus had resurrected from the dead. So you may want to say, if they say, have you ever, you know, these New Testament writers invented this, what do you mean by that? How'd you come to that conclusion? Have you ever considered they had every motive to say it wasn't true, not every motive to say it was? Why would they go die for a known lie? We know why people die for things they think are true but really aren't, but why would people die for people they know is false? They wouldn't. 
All right, that's number eight. We got a couple of more questions. The top 10 questions you ought to ask your skeptical friends. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek. We're back in just two minutes. Don't go anywhere. We're talking about the top 10 questions to ask your skeptical friends. We've been through eight of them. Here is number nine. Number nine is, what do you think happens after you die? What happens to you? And whatever they say, you can then ask the questions. What do you mean by that? How'd you come to that conclusion? Have you ever considered the best way to discover what happens after you die is to talk to somebody who died and came back? Yeah, that would be Jesus, wouldn't it? But just ask them, what do you think happens after you die? If they say, well, I think all the good people go to heaven and the bad people go to hell or the bad people are annihilated, what do you mean by good? And how'd you come to that conclusion? Why do you think that's true? Just see what they say. See where it goes. Have you ever considered that Christianity isn't a religion of good works, that good works get you to, get you to heaven? Christianity is good news, meaning an event took place. It wouldn't be good news if it was just like other world religions which say your good deeds have to outweigh your bad. That wouldn't be news. We already know that from other world religions. That wouldn't be news. Other world religions have already said that. And Christianity is saying, no, that's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. The way it works is, unless you're perfect, since I'm an infinitely just being, I can't allow you to go unpunished. But since you're not perfect, I'm going to take your punishment on myself. So God adds humanity to his deity, comes to earth, allows the, the creatures that rebelled against him to torture and kill him so he could then take their punishment on, on himself. That's what Jesus does. So ask him, what do you think happens after you die? Question number 10. Do you believe in justice? Well, who's going to say, no, I don't believe in justice? Of course I believe in justice, right? Well, then you can say, have you ever, if you believe in justice, then you believe that people who do unjust things ought to be punished, right? Yeah. Have you ever done anything unjust? They're going to have to say yes. And then you can say, would you like a pardon? Would you like a pardon? That's what Christianity, it's a pardon. And it's actually more than a pardon. You're not only forgiven of what you've done, you're then given God's righteousness. That's amazing when you think about it. So do you believe in justice? And by the way, there are a lot of people in our, in our world out there right now who obviously believe in justice. Everyone's talking about this is just or unjust or the systematic injustice or I have a right to this, a right to that. All that presupposes a standard. And that standard only exists if God exists. Otherwise, everything's a matter of opinion. So you actually have an argument for God by just asking, do you believe in justice? If they say yes, you go, oh, great, you believe in God then. <laughs> because without God, there's no such thing as justice or injustice. Everything's a matter of opinion. And justice will never be done unless there is a God. Why? Because... We know people do unjust things here on earth, and many of them never get punished. I mean, Hitler did awful things, and his own, he didn't get punished by anybody outside of himself. He just committed suicide, and that was it. Are you telling me that it's just 
that Hitler never gets any punishment for what he did? That's not justice. The only way justice can exist is if you have a, a just being who's all-knowing and can med out punishment in the afterlife. Because we know that people get out of this life without ever getting justice. So ask, do you believe in justice and see what people say? So, top 10 questions. I'll add a couple more here in a minute. The first question is really a series of questions. You know, what's your story? Where are you from? What do you do? How'd you get to where you are? Were you really, really, when you were raised in a religious home? If they make a declarative statement after that, what do you mean by that? That's number two. Number three, how'd you come to that conclusion? Number four, have you ever considered whatever the issue is, you can complete the sentence. Have you ever considered that all religions aren't basically the same, that they're only superficially the same and fundamentally different? Have you ever considered the Bible has not been changed throughout the centuries because we have enough manuscripts to compare to figure out what the original really said? Have you ever considered that Jesus said things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And I and the Father are one. And before Abraham was born, I am. And the, the New Testament writers called Jesus God on several occasions. If Christianity were true, question number five, would you, be a, would you become a Christian? That question right there clears away any non-intellectual objection. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? See what they say. If they hesitate or say no, it doesn't matter how much evidence you give them, they're not interested. Number six, who created and fine-tuned the universe? Why are we here? Why is anything here? Number seven, who do you think Jesus of Nazareth was? Number eight, oh, you're saying he was invented? Why would devout Jews invent or resurrect Jesus and then suffer and die for their own lie? We know people will die for things they think are true but are really not true. But I don't know of anybody who will die for something they know is a lie. Why would they do that? Number nine, what do you think happens after you die? Number 10, do you believe in justice? By the way, you can learn so much about this, not only by taking courses from us, the online Christian courses, but also if you really want to get a degree, you ought to go to SES. That's where I went, Southern Evangelical Seminary, ses.edu forward slash Frank will get you a discount on your first class. Check that out, ses.edu forward slash Frank. It's all virtual. You don't have to move. Although, you know, that's good and bad. In 1993, when I wanted to go to seminary, I had to move the whole family here to Charlotte. Now, that, that, was a, that, was, that was hard to do, but we did. And I learned so much from being in person with Dr. Geisler and the other instructors that I could never learn online. But in today's day and age, everything's online. It's better than not getting an education, obviously, but it's not as good as being there. Being there, you learn a lot more. You learn a lot more by, you know, going out to lunch with people and talking to people between classes and, you know, having some camaraderie. You don't, you don't get that online. But again, it's better than, better than no education at all. In any event, uh, these are some of the questions you ought to ask. I think there's other questions too you could ask. Like when they say, well, there's no evidence for God. You want to ask them, what do you mean by evidence? And uh, then you might ask them, why is there evidence for anything? Why is this world an orderly world? Why can we ascertain truths about this orderly world and draw conclusions about the real world with our minds? You see, the very claim that many atheists will say or non-believers will say regarding science is that, well, you got science, you don't need God. My contention is you need God to have science. Why? Because you need an orderly universe. 
Where does order come from? First of all, you need a universe, right? <laughs> you need a fine-tuned universe. You need an orderly fine-tuned universe. You need reason. You need a mind to observe the universe and draw conclusions about it. These are all things that are best explained by God. They're not explained by nature. Nature can't explain itself. Nature had a beginning. Nature came from somewhere. Nature's contingent. Nature's composed. Anything that's composed needs a composer. Something outside itself. It needs an uncomposed composer. An uncomposed creator. An uncreated creator. And then you might ask the question, why do these natural laws, not only why do they exist, why are they so persistent and consistent? Why do they do the same thing over and over again? They, those laws need to be sustained. They need to be created and sustained. And that's best explained by a mind, an unembodied mind. That's what we mean by God. That's one way to describe God. He's an intelligent, unembodied mind. So if you're going to claim you need evidence for something, you're presupposing God before you even, before you even look for evidence. If you're asking for evidence, you're pre presupposing this creation is a creation that can provide you evidence and that your mind can discover this evidence. That's why my contention is you have to steal from God in order to argue against him. So those are some questions you ought to ask your skeptical friends. And the two key ones, in my view, are ones that are going to lead them to God existing and Jesus rising from the dead. Again, if, if God exists and Jesus rose from the dead, Christianity is true. Why? Look, I just have a personal policy. If somebody predicts and accomplishes his own resurrection from the dead, I just trust whatever the guy says. And Jesus said the Old Testament was the word of God and he promised the New Testament. So on Jesus's authority, we can discover that Christianity is true and the Bible is true. That's how we do that. Now, all the details are in the book. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, so if you want to go further there, you can. I also want to mention, and this is coming up, ladies and gentlemen, I'm giving you a, a preview of this. My son and I, who's a career military intelligence officer, who is also a graduate of Southern Evangelical Seminary, the past couple of years have gotten together to write a book called Hollywood Heroes, How Your Favorite Movies Reveal God. This book is coming out April 5th. But if you pre-order it now, it'll help move it up the charts. And if you do pre-order it, we're going to send you a special gift. I don't have that with me yet. We're hoping to have the audible version or the audio version of Hollywood Heroes done shortly. I'm recording it. I've just got a couple more things to record. And we hope, I can't promise this, but we hope we're going to be able to give you the audio version for free if you pre-order the book. So if you pre-order Hollywood Heroes now, save the receipt. In the next month or so, or month and a half, we're going to tell you how you can get the audio version for free in advance if you pre-order the book. And here are the, the, the uh, movie franchises we're investigating here. It's going to help you make evangelism and discipleship much easier. We're covering uh, movie franchises like Captain America, Iron Man, Harry Potter. Yes, Harry Potter. You'd be surprised. Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Batman, and Wonder Woman. And they're all pointing to the ultimate hero, Jesus. That's what this book, Hollywood Heroes, How Your Favorite Movies Reveal God, is all about. It's a fun and easy way to get life lessons, theology lessons, apologetic lessons right through the movies. 
Again, the book comes out April 5th, 2022, but pre-order it now at Amazon or wherever you pre-order books. Save the receipt, and I'll tell you here in the next month or so how you can get the audio version for free. That's what we're trying to do. I can't promise it yet, but I think we're going to be able to do it. So check all that out. Don't forget, I'm in Dallas this week, UT Dallas on Thursday. This Sunday, I'm at Cottonwood Creek Church in Dallas. And then next weekend at the university or at the Unapologetic Evangelism Conference. All the details on our website. See you next time. God bless.